It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego, Ani Bojo, Kwekwe, Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. If you download that app, and here's how you do it, you go to the you know, you go to the Radio Player app, download it, and then you type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And uh, you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country 24 hours a day. That comes in handy if you're, you know, not near, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, outside of our listening area, for instance, either in Toronto or Ottawa. And uh, somebody might want to listen to our programming or catch one of our interviews. Uh, and also, you can uh, let people know that you can uh, go to our SoundCloud. We can we always post our interviews, so they're available after the fact. Um, a couple of days takes us to put it up there, but uh, they're up there for you to go back and listen to. Um, and also on our website. I'd like to welcome uh, my first guest to the show. Her name is Brenda McIntyre. And she also is known by uh, the name of Medicine Songwoman. Brenda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, you're, uh, it's, it's interesting, your story, um, you know, you, 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 you sort of uh, make a little bit of fun of yourself as an overnight success. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, is not an overnight success, uh, as everybody knows. It usually doesn't fall out that way. But, uh, you know, you, you have, uh, you, you're a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that you have a story to share about how uh, the medicine drum came to you or how that hand drum became medicine and, and, and sort of enticed you, I think. Mm, I, yeah, the, the drum brought me, brought me back to who I am like, mm. in so many ways. Uh, I, I've been singing for like 35 years or so um, professionally, but when I, I wasn't always drumming. I was just singing pop songs mainly mm. at first mm-hmm. and... Uh, when the drum found me back in 1990-something, um, that sort of was the, the pathway back into my Indigenous heritage and culture, actually, because I didn't even know that that was happening. You know, that was a part of who I was. Mm. Um, and it was also a really, really um, beautiful beginning to my healing journey after losing my parents when I was young. And so, yeah, I started I started drumming as soon as I, I just I had this calling to go and get this drum. I had no idea what really I to do with this drum. And uh, and then the teachings followed and, you know, and I started I joining. Well, I, I kind of co co did this group, um, a, a drum group uh, called Spirit Wind was kind of they, they were going to end. And uh, one of the people that was in the group was telling me this and. You know, people were moving away, going to, to university, teaching, whatever. And uh, and then we ended up uh, starting Spirit Wind, um, starting our own drum group, uh, just with the two of us, me and Zainab Amadahi. And, uh, and then that grew, and it still continues um, as its own beautiful entity. And um, the women are still drumming. And, and yeah, I, I love it, just coming into the women's drumming community. It's been so healing for me. Now, you said something really interesting there about the drum. Um <coughs> When the drum called came to you, or or you called to you, or something to that. The nature. drum found me. The drum yeah. found you, <laughs> um, right? And uh, that's not you know something I'm unfamiliar with in terms of hearing about this. But other people 
maybe going, what, is, what do you mean? What, <laughs> what are you talking about? drum. What are you talking about? That's true. Can you explain that a little more? What, 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 yeah. 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 Um, and I'm, I, I have to say, too, like at that point, I've always been a spiritual person. Mm. Um, I've had been having visions since I was like seven. Um, and that actually brought me to this, too, to all my music and, um, and my own healing journey. But, yeah, the drum, like I... I I did. I walked into a store and I found some drums. I mm. don't remember much more about that except this one drum was just calling to me. Mm. And I found that a lot of people who who like crystals and stones mm. will know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Because if you, you go into a crystal store, you're not like, oh, that one's really pretty. <laughs> you know, you're like, I can't seem to put this one down, so right. I better leave with it. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what happened. And so... I had to do that and I had to bring that drum home. I didn't really know any songs yet. And then that happened. You know, I, I met Zain- Zainab and through ser- mm. serendipity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up starting the drum group pretty quickly. And she taught me so much about what I knew, what, what I know about drumming mm. and uh, the songs that we have here in Toronto. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of women's hand drum songs that Maggie Paul brought a lot of them here. Mm. From the East Coast. Right. And, uh, now, you know, the other thing that's interesting while talking about that, about <clears throat> the drum found you and this drum called out to you, uh, a, a lot of people wouldn't understand, you know, the, the a drum or any of that, that cultural, indigenous culture. You know, there's there's a um, sort of a protocol and there's uh, respecting the drum. And, you know, for instance, the powwow drum, as uh, you may be aware, those drummers just don't go out, out and start no, pounding exactly. on this thing. They have to wake it up. They have, you know, and and uh, uh, give it tobacco. And there's a whole protocol around these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very different approach to music uh, and to uh, being able to uh, connect with that music. Other than you know, you just don't go out on stage and boom. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on that people don't see or don't know about. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I've had some real fun in the band, in the, in the back, you know, room with the bands mm. and stuff at different gigs where people are like, oh, hey, oh, cool instrument. And they want right. to pick it up. And yeah. it's like, no. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pick it up. Right. And yeah, there's all, and just, you know, saying no to certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have one drum that allows me to, and, and I will use that language because these mm-hmm. drums are living beings. Sure. And so um, my one drum that I have is a community drum. Mm-hmm. And, um, even this woman that hired me to do some th- stuff at Minwash and Lodge in Ottawa saw that right away. She's just mm. like, oh, that's your community drum without mm. me saying anything. Nice, yeah. Just new. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's the one that will let anyone touch and people touch the drum. He's happy to have people touch him um, and happy for me to take him in even into places that have alcohol, mm. which is, you know, as mm-hmm. you know, our protocols sure. don't like my other yeah. drums. There's no way I would do that. with. Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, so do you still have that first drum you found? Um, I do. I have no. I gifted that one. Uh, okay. I gifted that one out to a young woman who was coming into her adulthood, having her ceremony of coming out. Yeah. Very nice. Now you've moved on, and and I guess in some ways you you still carried on with your um, your traditional music, and and what I mean by that is the tradition of you being a musician. Right. So you and you have a new album that came out. That and I'm interested in the, uh, you know, the the music that colors what what you and how you write because, you know, there's a, a lot of reggae in in that <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, very prominent. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, where did that come from? How did that evolve into your music? 
Yeah. Um, well, so when I came to Toronto when in 1985, uh, like I was saying earlier, I was just writing pop songs. So that was my first songs that I was writing. And I wasn't really doing anything with it. But then I ended up going to Miami because um, my boyfriend claimed that it sounded like this really funny. I'm, I'm like, sure, this is true. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I have this, you know, I, I can get you a record. Like you'll have you'll be mm. on you'll you'll have this producer and blah, blah, blah. And it just making it sound because he wanted me to come there because we had had a fight. Oh, so. <laughs> So I'm like, well, you know, it's a free ticket to Miami. Maybe it's true that his friend knows or whatever. And yeah, it it just within three weeks, I had a test press of a vinyl 12 inch. I was like, okay, here we go. Mm. And it was hip hop. That was my first thing I did. And the thing is, when I when I was living in BC, uh, where I was living in Kamloops and Vernon, like Mm. we had in both of those places, two radio stations at that point. Is you either listening to country or rock and roll, right? right or, sure. or top forty, and that's it. And so I, I, other than Bobby Farron, had never even heard reggae until I moved to Toronto. <laughs> and when I moved here and heard it, I was just in love with it. Mm. And like a lot of it was honestly to do with drums and bass. Mm. I've always been mm-hmm. attracted to drumming. I just didn't right. know it would be this kind of drumming that sure. I would do. Um, but also because I saw that it was being used to spread positive messages. Mm-hmm. That made me feel amazing, and that wanted that was kind of where my path was leading me. So I went into uh, reggae, and it just was so easy for me. It just felt so right and good, and uh, and also I could be really innovative with it. I've always been a fusion kind of a musician. I mm. never really just did dancehall reggae. But there was always some R and B in there mm. or something else happening, um, and yeah, that's kind of where it started. Was you know back in. I'm not maybe 1987, 88 or something like that. But it was, you know, so I moved from hip hop into reggae and kind of fused those two. Yeah. Okay. Now, earlier you mentioned your parents, that you lost your parents at an early age. Mm -hmm. Um, You also, I believe, uh, in your early ages had some some, uh, issues with with, uh, bad relationships and those kind of things that you you addressed and, and that that helped to sort of shape uh, I guess the person you are now as well. Yeah, I mean, for real, all of it does. It all, you know, our lives shape who we are um, in so many ways. But uh, yeah, I I didn't, I feel like the reason that the drum has helped me so much is because I, like after losing my parents, I didn't have any way of grieving. There was nothing. My parent, my, you know, first it was my my mom, and my dad didn't know how to, there was mm. nothing back then for us mm. um, in terms of counseling or, you know, help with grieving or even ceremonies or something. There was nothing. So uh, I moved here just broken, depressed, mm. not really knowing it. Uh, and then when I woke up one day and realized, I'm like, whoa, this, I, I had this experience of joy. And at that point I had already, I already had the drum. And so this is like kind of, foundational for me this this drum even though it came in later but it came in when I was when I was seeking help uh at Nikanon here in Toronto a women's healing lodge indigenous women's healing lodge and that was because of all those relationships I was like something's going on here and I need to know what and these counselors aren't helping me enough like Mm -hmm. there's something that's missing here and as soon as I started uh receiving teachings from the elders and from the medicine women that were coming in and healings 
um, that's really what helped to uh, bring me out of those patterns and into like really living and actually enjoying my life um, and being able to make a difference from more of a healed place. Um, and how that happened with they had a Navajo elder come up here to Nikanon and give us healing sessions mm. if we wanted. And I got a we had a circle and we all got something out of it. And then I had a private healing with her. <clears throat> and that was when, uh, well, for one, she told me I was a healer and I was not ready to accept that at all. Mm. Um, mm. Terrified of the prospect of that. Mm. But uh, and also I didn't feel good enough. Right. And also I didn't feel indigenous enough. Mm. And I still have that these right. days. It's still like a thing. It's just like, yeah, I don't know my whole story. I think, but I that think drum. that you're not alone there. I think a lot of, of a us lot feel of us, that yeah. way, right? Uh, just before you continue, I just want to mm-hmm. let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, with a frog in my throat, apparently. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> and um, uh, my guest is Brenda McIntyre. She's a musician. She's also known as Medicine Songwoman. We're talking about her music. Uh, she has a CD out. Uh, and uh, also, uh, she's had some situations that have that have shaped her life around this. And... Uh, uh, you know, Brenda, you just talked about healing, and mm. I, I'm wondering how that helped you in another situation, uh, a very personal and, and tragic situation in your life. You lost your son mm-hmm. to, to a violent crime. Yeah. Um, honestly, if I hadn't had the healing behind me that I already did, um, I would not be sitting here in this chair doing this interview with you. I'd be depressed in my bed. I've seen this happen with so many people because of being part of a support group for homicide survivors that we have here in Toronto. Thank goodness. Um, a lot of people don't know what to do. Can't it's they can hardly go on. It's, it's really awful. And it still is hard for me. It's I suffer from chronic pain. Now I have PTSD. There's other things going on. It's uh, not been easy. Um, and today is the, the fourth anniversary of my son's, death and yeah yeah, so uh the healing like so healing song which is on the album was a song for my son and when he was 14 that i i with his seagull feathers and with my that drum i was telling you about Mm -hmm. i channeled a song for him um i asked creator basically for a song for him and uh that's what came through and that was like a really huge one for me. Um, and that's one of the songs that a lot of people sing that song in our community and many communities. And I, I love that it spread out. I wasn't sure if it would be a personal song. Mm. Um, it ended up being for everyone. And a lot of my songs are. And that's, you know, the ones that I record always are. And it's about sharing that medicine with our, with an, with our people, but also just with anyone who needs it. And for me... Um, Having lost my mom and my dad so young when I was a teenager and then going through that and then getting through that grieving process, starting with that Navajo elder, really, Mm -hmm. and being at that healing lodge, um, you know, and and the medicine of the drum and of my voice that uh, and me helping women to find their voice for years. That's for like the last 20 years or whatever. Ever since I got the drum, I've been helping women heal, find their voice Um. And that has helped me to find my own and in, you know, layer by layer and opening up even more of it, um, which has resulted in this album, really. Um, But yeah, the the going through all of this 
has been horrifying for me that my son was gunned down because his friend whose birthday it was and they were going out to celebrate asked some guy for directions and that guy um, shot him, all of them. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really rough. And at the same time, one, the one thing, like I always go to music for healing. Mm. I just always do. It's the first easy thing for me. As soon as I was in shock and I didn't know what to do, that's where I went. The one thing I know will, if it's going to give me, if I can find anything that's going to give me any help, it's going to always be music. And um, and my, if I can sing myself, which I couldn't at all mm. at first, uh, but if I can, then that's healing for me. And there's a whole system I developed over the years um, called Sing Yourself Alive. And um, and it's uh, it's true. We sing ourselves alive like that. Mm. It brings life at... And anyway, there's all these teachings I would go into that I know we don't have time for, but it's it's to do with our throat center, our heart center, and our and our belly, full belly, and that's where all of the that's where the song comes from. Right. But that's um, to be able to speak your truth, to be able to um, to heal whatever's been blocking you from speaking your truth. Mm-hmm. And so, because of all of that that I had done, um, I've been able to kind of help myself a lot more through all of the trauma not that I don't also get help Mm because I totally do and I feel like that's important to say um my first my first counselor was actually um my elder um Joanne Dallaire Mm. and she's uh been a really huge influence in my life um ever since I met her she's the one that gave me my spirit name as well Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the name of the album is Picking Up the Pieces. As, uh, mm-hmm. as you now, and there's, uh, as you mentioned, I, I guess aptly named because it sounds like that's sort of what you're doing <laughs> yeah. is picking up the pieces and putting that back together. I really liked how you described about uh, singing yourself alive. I think that's, uh, that's, that's a great way of, of interpreting that and looking at it. Um, it would be great to hear more about these other teachings that you have and the healings that you have. I think other people might be able to to uh, take advantage of that and use it for their own purposes, you know, uh, perhaps struggling with their own personal uh, issues mm-hmm. and tragedies and things like that as well. Um, so um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to uh, find out more about you and about more about your, your music and about these teachings? How can they reach you? Uh, they can get me at uh, medicinesongwoman.com. Mm-hmm. And you can just Google Brenda McIntyre and you're going to find me too I'm on all the social media stuff and... Um, and I put out blogs uh, with yes. with a lot of helpful, useful information, videos, and right. and uh, articles and stuff. Yeah, the music itself you can get at pickingupthepiecesproject.com. Okay, we have it set up so you can have all the download links or streaming links if you the mm. major ones like right. you know Amazon and iTunes and all that kind of stuff, right. and as well as my website, yeah. All right, well, it's been a pleasure having uh, Brenda in, in on the show today, Brenda McIntyre. Uh, the name of her CD is called Picking Up the Pieces, and, and of course, uh, Brenda has so much more to offer, as you've heard. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have her on the show to not only hear about uh, uh, her her life, uh, because I'm sure that can uh, reach some people. Some people will readily identify with some of the things you've been talking about, Brenda, and I can appreciate that, but 
the album, uh, as she mentioned early, earlier, that reggae, uh, she liked that it was full of positive <laughs> messages. And, uh, and it, her album uh, gives you that feeling as well. Um, however, there is, uh, there's also, uh, as this is about picking up the pieces, uh, this one piece of music called Grieve, which she is dedicated to the survivors of homicide and, and uh, also gun violence. And uh, we're going to play a little bit of that as we head out to the show, just so you can give a sense of that. And, but it's been a pleasure having uh, uh, Brenda on the show. We look forward uh, to uh, uh, having you maybe back on again. And also, I uh, wish you all the best in the future, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, we'll be back right after this on Moment of Truth. to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And uh, you can also listen on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. Download the app, type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And you can be listening on your device of choice uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, right across the country. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, Colin D. Sutherland Wilson, and uh, he's here uh, from the West Coast on the line, uh, calling in from uh, Victoria, British Columbia, and uh, he's here to talk about uh, a news item that's been going on for a little while. You've been hearing about it in the news, uh, having to do with uh, pipeline uh, out in British Columbia and uh, some of the uh, some of the the uh, protesting, for lack of a better word, to say that's been going on there to help uh, uh, bring attention to and try to stop uh, the pipelines from going through. Uh, Colin, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Colin, what what can you tell us uh, right off the top as we start this? Uh, what uh, what's happening at this point in time? What's been developing over the last week or so? Well, uh, essentially, what has happened from the beginning here is that uh, you know British Columbia has basically taken a position that's criminalizing Wet'suwet'en law and making it dif- difficult for the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to, uh, you know. Uh, basically enforce or enact their uh, 
their own laws of consent in regards to the projects that are being put forward on their territory. Mm. So right now it seems that, you know, BC has taken a first step in a, towards a dialogue that the Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chiefs had basically asked for uh, following the eviction of Coastal Gas Link, which is the, the pipeline company from their territory. Mm-hmm. But regardless, there is a RCMP exclusion zone and, you know, many worries up north that there will be an imminent raid, essentially repeating what happened last year on January 7th. Right. Um, and of course, uh, when that uh, when when the RCMP erected that blockade that that area that they're stopping people from going through, uh, last I heard about that was that they were saying only certain people were allowed, um, and uh, and there's now a challenge in regard to that, I believe. Yeah, uh, from my understanding, uh, they were only allowing at a certain point, hereditary chiefs uh, to access the territory, and they were limiting uh, new supporters, they were limiting lawyers, legal observers. Uh, you know, in certain cases, they turned away, uh, you know, people that were transporting essentially food, basics, essentials of life, you know, warm clothes for the cold weather. Mm. Right. Um, now... What's your sense of the situation because of the the dual sort of uh, uh, governance that's that's you know implied with with indigenous communities in some areas where they have both, as you mentioned, the hereditary chiefs as well as the elected system. Uh, there are some agreements with with some of the First Nations on the on the uh, elected uh, or you know the, the council side. It's the hereditary chiefs that are saying, of course, that they have they didn't uh, give their okay on this. Well, it's a tricky one because you really have to look at the history because uh, in the end, you know, the band council model is essentially an extension of the federal government. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never really had, a, a, it's never been a proper expression of, you know, self-governance, self-determination because it's ultimately been accountable to Indian affairs. Well, the hereditary chiefs, you know, going back to 1912 with the McKenna McBride Commission, you know, it was very clear from the get-go that, you know, they've rejected the reserve system, they've rejected the bank council model, you know, with both those having been imposed on their territories. And, you know, ever since that time, they've essentially challenged Canada, saying, you know, we've never ceded our jurisdiction, we've never ceded our authority over those territories. And, uh, you know, that's it's still the same struggle that comes to this day, and... uh so in the end, you know, the Wet'suwet'en are, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are basically saying, you know, above all, like, it's our own law that must apply on our territories. And, uh, you know, while band councils may have signed on, you know, the position of uh, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs basically states that, you know, the band councils only have jurisdiction over the uh, the, the territories, only over the small tracts of land that are on reserve, which, uh, you know, does not account for the wider territories, which the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs uh, only received recognition for, you know, through court challenges like Elgamuf versus British Columbia. Because if the hereditary chiefs had not, you know, challenged Canada ever since, you know, going back to 1912, like the Wet'suwet'en nation as a whole would never have had a say over this project in the first place because this pipeline goes through the territories that were affirmed in Delgamuth. Mm. 
Um, uh, Colin, before we go any further, can you give me a, a sense of what your involvement is here with the with the organization and with this 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 uh, this whole situation? Where do you fit in? Okay, yeah, it's good to provide some context. So <laughs> I am from the Gixan Nation, mm-hmm. and uh, we are neighboring nations with the Wet'suwet'en. And, you know, going back uh, hundreds of years, at the very least, we have been very close allies with the Wet'suwet'en to the point where, uh, you know, our hereditary chiefs back in 1984 decided to uh, go to the courts together to first the Supreme Court of British Columbia and then eventually the uh, Supreme Court of Canada in pursuit of land claims, you know, through the demonstration of our oral histories and our laws. It was a very long, arduous process, but... uh, you know, our nations went through it together. And, you know, for myself, belonging to the Gixan, belonging to, uh, you know, a family that's very involved in the Gixan law, uh, simply my position in all this is that I realize when we uphold what's owed in law, you know, it makes it easier for my people to uphold our law on our own territories. And I think that's also, you know, one of the same reasons that a lot of the young Indigenous people that, uh, you know, are going out and getting arrested at the Ministry of uh, Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources. You know, a lot of the young people occupying offices. A lot of the reasons that we're doing this is because we recognize that, uh, you know, what is happening on Wet'suwet'en territory sets a precedent for the rest of Canada. Mm. You know, and whether, uh, you know, Indigenous peoples through their own, uh, you know, self-declared governments, like if they're able to... Uh, you know, exercise their rights if they're able to, uh, you know, exist in a situation where consent matters with the government. If, you know, if that can be established at Wet'suwet'en, like uh, on Unistoten territory, you know, for the rest of Canada, we'll have, you know, more say over what happens on our own lands, our own lives. Uh, well, I can certainly understand uh, the whole context of what you're describing from both uh, the bank council, elected bank council, and the hereditary side of things. Uh, uh, Six Nations, my my community is is set up in the same way, and there is that uh, the same kind of, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, recognition of what the band council represents and stands for, and uh, the the uh, traditional uh, council uh, and and what they are supposed to represent. And um, and what they speak for, uh, that's uh, sort of a, a an ongoing thing that's, that's happening. How does that play out in your communities? Uh, this is what we see. But what we're hearing from down here is more about uh, not anything between the councils and the and the hereditary uh, chiefs. Uh, you know, discussions of those. It looks like it, it's uh, they're sitting down with representatives and maybe government officials to try and and work this this out. Is there tension between the band councils and the hereditary council and chiefs? Well, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of that tension really comes from the narrative that, uh, you know, Premier Horgan, different media outlets in this area have really been spreading on the subject. Mm-hmm. Like they've, you know, it's been a huge distinction, uh, you know, the hereditary chiefs and the elected band councils. And, uh, you know, for many Canadians, when they frame it in that way and even in the past like uh john horgan himself basically uh even made a statement essentially saying like you know the historic band council model and the uh and the uh you know the emerging predatory chief model like there's been a lot of confusion 
on that subject. So that's just one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to jump into that because, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of people who really do not understand, you know, fundamentally, like, where the band council came from or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the history behind it, how the RCMP enforced it, how uh, it essentially was brought in to displace the voice of our governments while we were criminalized through the potlatch ban and other Indian Act amendments. And I think, from what I understand, similar things happened over in Six Nations, too. And, mm-hmm. you know, following, like, Descahe and that address to the League of Nations, but mm-hmm. that's... You know, it's a story all throughout Canada, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think you know the the overall problematic discussion has been you know this idea that you know this all comes down to divisiveness within the Wet'suwet'en nation that they're difficult to work with that uh, mm. and that's kind of been a, a very problematic narrative that you know in my opinion has been used to uh, undermine you know the uh, the voice of the hereditary chiefs, which. You know, British Columbia should be very well aware of who they should talk to. And I'm just going to implicate British Columbia in all of this because, you know, they have a history with, with Soden hereditary chiefs. They, uh, you know, went to the courts and, uh, you know, there was big decisions regarding authority, title, land. Uh, that ended in 1997. They were engaged in trilateral treaty negotiations with the hereditary chiefs. Uh, going back to 1994, they... Uh, you know, there's been numerous other agreements that have been organized between like British Columbia, the hereditary chiefs and in industry, like especially in forestry. So it's not like, you know, British Columbia didn't know who to talk with. But in this case, all of a sudden they're satisfied with, uh, you know, the permissions of the band council when, you know, before it was very clear that they recognized, you know, to some degree the, uh, you know, the authority of the hereditary chiefs and what's owed in law. And so in this case, uh, you know, rather than focusing on, you know, the divisions between the band councils and the hereditary chiefs, I think it's just important to note that, you know, any tensions that did exist there, and because, you know, that is an imposed system, there will always be some tensions. Uh, those have been greatly exacerbated by, uh, you know, the way that BC and CGL have approached gaining consent for this project. Right. Uh, Before we go further, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and also uh, download the Radio Player Canada app and listen right across the country uh, by just following the instructions and typing in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM. My guest is Colin D. Sutherland Wilson. He's on the line uh, from Victoria, and he, he is with the Gitsan Nation, uh, and he is talking to us about uh, the recent stories that you have uh, probably heard about uh, having to do with the Coastal Gas Links uh, pipeline and the, the issue uh, of, uh, revolving around uh, try, uh, getting consent or trying to get consent or some consensus, at least, with the uh, hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en uh, people. Uh, he is, uh, Colin, that is, is, is here talking to us as someone supporting the Wet'suwet'en as, uh, as, as uh, the Gitsan and the, the Wet'suwet'en have had uh, long-standing relationships and supporting. Uh, uh, Colin, as you were mentioning earlier about support and, and doing this in, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, show, uh, I guess, a way for, for moving forward on these kind of things for perhaps other indigenous communities and nations across the country, 
Um, are you seeing support? Are you getting support? Are you hearing from other uh, communities and nations across Canada? Oh yeah, we've. Uh, well, I've I've personally heard a lot from, you know, many different peoples. Uh, you know, a lot of the youth that were organized in, uh, you know, the occupation of the the Ministry of Energy recently came from nations all throughout British Columbia and, uh, you know, especially around here, kind of the lower island areas, but also. Know back home, including Gixana with Soden peoples, and and uh, I think just in general, from what I've seen, you know, there's more and more that's happening. There's more and more people that are, you know, starting to get involved to try to, you know, learn ways of direct action, but also, uh, you know, trying to approach it in a peaceful way that just is simply to educate people on the subject and to raise awareness, and uh, you know, ultimately to pressure the premier into. Uh, you know, facilitating a dialogue with the hereditary chiefs, whereas before, you know, Oregon was making it clear that, you know, he was not going to talk with the hereditary chiefs. He was not going to listen to what they had to say. But, you know, following what I would call like a very busy week here in British Columbia and, you know, all throughout Canada, you know, Premier is, Premier Oregon has basically, uh, you know, kind of conceded to some of those requests. And, you know, we're seeing that in the form of uh, Nathan Cullen being appointed as a mediator. Mm. For, uh, and, uh, you know, we're starting to see, you know, the premier having to address this subject kind of more, you know, uh, more frequently, especially when in the past, like, he made statements that essentially said, you know, there is no discussions to be had. There's uh, the rule of law must apply. And, uh, you know, even following those kinds of public statements, we're starting to see uh, a bit of backtracking. We're starting to see, you know, the, the pressure get to the premier. And, you know, at least at this point, with Colin up there, it's, you know, definitely uh, it's looking a little better than before when, uh, you know, it just seemed like there was another imminent raid on unarmed with Soden peoples. But mm. I think... Uh, you know, from my understanding, like especially in this area, people are still continuing to organize and uh, still wanting to keep up the pressure because, you know, there's still no guarantee that uh, proper dialogue is going to take place. Right. So are you still, you're still in Victoria. Are you still at the legislature? Or you... um, well, I was at the legislature for an entire week mm-hmm. uh, following the call to action, mm-hmm. the international call to action by the hereditary chiefs, but... Currently, uh, you know, I've been involved in other things, uh, trying to, you know, work on different ways to approach the issue, uh, you know, through making some educational videos on the topic, through uh, speaking at different organizations and, you know, a bit more of the direct action approach with other Indigenous youth. Um, But overall, I I think... uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to balance all of this with mm. uh, a full force load at the University of Victoria, which you know definitely takes up a lot of my time. Sure. But, uh, now, yeah. uh, now, initially there were about 13 people arrested. Do you know have they been released or are they still in custody? Do you know what the situation in there uh, is? Well, I was one of the the arrested, and mm-hmm. uh, we were all released quite promptly. You mm. know catch and release, basically, and at, at this point, no charges were laid. Mm. You know, and, and like I mentioned before, there was uh, 
the uh, the the uh, official complaint that was filed towards the Vic DD, and uh, you know that was essentially the result of uh, you know some very aggressive policing action that took place against you know Indigenous youth that were only uh, occupying an empty hallway essentially in song and prayer, and you know I'll just say it escalated to the point where. Uh, you know, you had over 30 officers kind of dragging off one youth at a time and uh, over the course of what must have been, uh, you know, four hours. It was uh, quite the ordeal, quite the ordeal. Mm. Are you yourself uh, or um, people close to you, are are you in... Um, uh, in, in the connection or, or in communication with the hereditary chiefs at all? Well, uh, yeah, I personally, like, uh, I have, you know, many relations, loved ones, uh, that are up at the, uh, the Mistoten, kind of on Witsoden territories or Gidimden territories. It's, uh, and recently too, like, uh, the hereditary leadership of my nation, like the Gixan hereditary chiefs, they have come out and openly, you know, uh, I guess, uh, stated their support the Wet'suwet'en mm. and uh, you know other different indigenous like traditional governments are also doing the same and uh, and yeah just being two nations that were in very close proximity for thousands of years we have you know countless connections between each other and uh, so that is also one of the reasons why I can't sit still it's because you know I, I have loved ones up there that you know I don't want to see them being put at risk uh from another raid, especially after, you know, what the Guardian uh, released not too long ago that essentially explained uh, strategies of the RCMP, which mm. included the uh, the use of lethal force uh, through the authorization of lethal overwatch and, uh, you yeah. know, the instructions to sterilize the site and violently dismantle blockades and the kind of understanding how wrong it could go. Mm-hmm. Like we're hoping that by raising a lot of noise down here in the cities, raising noise at MLA offices, ministries, you know, all in a peaceful manner that, you know, honors Witsoden law and honors the Witsoden chiefs. But we're hoping by doing this, we can just mitigate, you know, anyone from being harmed up there. That's And uh, a lot of the people down here, you know, we have very similar connections to the people up there because, you know, many of our communities are very closely knit and, like I mentioned before, this sets a precedent for the rest of Canada. And so, you know, for anyone who's been trying to protect their own territories from, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, issues that regard uh, consent, especially, like this is one where we feel that, you know, if we can create a higher standard for uh, relations between British Columbia and Indigenous peoples, or even Canada and Indigenous peoples, then, you know, that standard will be seen and felt throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and uh, and share your thoughts and, and concerns and uh, and give us uh, updates on the situation. Uh, and, you know, we'll be, of course, watching, and uh, hopefully we can perhaps connect at a later date to have you back on the show to give us a further update. All right. Thank you very much for having me on. And let's hope that calm uh, and cool heads prevail uh, everywhere.
Yes, exactly. All right. That uh, voice you've been listening to is Colin D. Sutherland Wilson. He is uh, a member of the Gitsan Nation uh, and, and out there in Victoria speaking to us uh, as they support the uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs uh, trying to get uh, that situation with the uh, Coastal Gas Link pipeline resolved. Uh, we will be watching, as I, as I said, and uh, we appreciate you uh, listening to us here on Element FM, and we thank uh, Colin once again for uh, joining us on the show. That uh, is this section of uh, Element FM and Moment of Truth, and we will be right back with another interview with someone from our Ottawa station. So please don't go away. We'll be right back with that after this. And welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Now, many of us will be stocking up on snacks, getting together with friends and family, and gearing up for the most entertaining commercials of the year this weekend. Super Bowl 54 is set for Sunday night in Miami Gardens, with San Francisco taking on Kansas City for the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Well, many are eager to find out who will come out on top between two talented young quarterbacks. Others will struggle with what will be happening off the field. Kansas City's rise to the NFL's championship game has once again reignited the debate on the use of Indigenous names, logos, ceremonies in sport. Fans at Kansas City's Arrowhead Stadium frequently celebrate with what fans have redubbed the Arrowhead Chop, commonly known as the Tomahawk Chop. It's also common to find non-Indigenous supporters of the team donning headdresses and war paint. Kansas City is not alone, of course, with Washington's NFL team, Atlanta and Cleveland's Major League Baseball teams, and countless others, all raising serious concerns about cultural appropriation in sports. Some high-profile celebrities, including actress Jamie Lee Curtis, have called on these teams to end these practices. With more on this, Element FM's Matthew Bisson in our Ottawa station spoke with Rhonda Lavaldo, a professor at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. Most of us are familiar with NFL teams in Washington and Kansas City, as well as baseball teams in Atlanta and others, of course. But how far back does the use of indigenous titles and imagery for sports teams slash logos and mascots go? Um, It's been going on for a very long time in the 1900s. I can't remember uh, what year uh, Washington's was incorporated. Um, But yeah, it's been going on for a while and, and... you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. That's sort of a question I have for you down the road. But uh, how is this still a thing in 2020? How do you think this has been allowed to go on this long? You know, I just don't know. I think probably a lot of it has to do with native erasure. You know, they um, don't think we're here anymore or, or don't think we mind. But it's really odd that other minority groups, um, you know, this wouldn't be done with them. But Obviously, you think it's okay with us, and I don't understand why other people of color um, agree with it or, you know, stick by it. I mean, it's like, come on, they wouldn't do this, you know, with 
with your demographics? I feel like the answer should be obvious to most, but how is this cultural appropriation in sports unhealthy for Indigenous peoples and even really non-Indigenous peoples? Well, you know, looking at the stereotypes that are perpetuated by uh, cultural appropriation um, impacts our young people and their self-esteem. Uh, that's been written about many times. And, of course, in Indian country here, you know, a lot of our our kids, um, you know, they have issues going on and we have the highest rates of suicide. And so, you know, the self-esteem impacted even being seen as a character or, you know, people dressing up in headdresses. I always think as myself, when I was a child, I saw somebody dressed up as an Indian and I was like, why are they making fun of us? And I know that was not the point of why they were dressed up like that. They just thought they were being funny and dressing up as an Indian for Halloween. And so a child, I don't think they can comprehend that situation and understand that they're, they're not being made fun of. And so that's where the disconnect comes with adults not realizing what they're doing with this, you know, with the headdresses and with the chop, um, putting on, you know, war paint or whatever. And I had a friend who recently went to a game with her daughter, and her daughter thought she could handle it. They were there for the other team. And um, she said, you know, first quarter she goes, she couldn't handle it no more. She just couldn't handle the chop and the chant, and she wanted to leave. You know, because it was just really bothering her. So things like this impact the self-esteem of our children. I think that's a really good angle to bring up about this, because I know for me, just as a grown adult or somewhat grown adult, if you will, that it's offensive enough to me just on just a very basic level. But to even think about that, like to focus on how it's actually affecting youth, I think is is, is particularly pertinent. Yeah. And it's it's just cringeworthy, you know. It's not even like I don't watch the games. I don't go to the games. I try not to be out when they're on because I don't want to hear that uh, chant. And it's not even just during that, but like during concerts here in the area, like people will just randomly break out in it. And then uh, there was a basketball game um, here in town between um, the two state universities, and they started doing it during the basketball game. And I just couldn't believe they were doing that and you know it's just it's just upsetting yeah they obviously had no even connection to this so absolutely no reason to do it now you've obviously been covering this for quite some time now what are some of the common excuses that you hear from some of these teams that they use to you know justify continuing doing this well in 2005 when we first uh, did a big a big protest in kansas city um and we had asked Kansas City uh, to see if they could just tell their you know, fans not to dress up, um, not to do the chop or the chant, and, and they didn't, they, they wouldn't comply at all. They, they were like, no, it's, you know, part of our fans. And even now, um, you know, they're saying, oh, well, that's part of the fan experience is doing the chop. So it's kind of weird that that's their response now. And and prior to this, they were also saying that, oh, well, we're, we're not Native Americans, you know, we only have a stadium in Arrowhead, and we do the chop, and we have a big drum that we bang on, but we're not Native Americans. Wow, that is painful to uh, have to kind of have those conversations. Now, 
I think also for me personally, fairly cringe worthy when having these sort of discussions is that, you know, every now and then a team or a representative of a team or even, you know, parts of the fan base will say, well, I know X person or X indigenous people who are fine with this. So it's okay. What is your response to that? Yeah, that's definitely a response we get a lot is, or like I have Native American in my roots. And for myself, usually what I respond to people is, you know, if you've never done anything for your tribe, your indigenous nation in giving back to them, then you have no right to use that excuse. Yeah, which I think that's fairly straightforward. Now, we sort of touched on this at the top of the in the interview, and maybe, you know, this is a hopeful side of me kind of coming out that is maybe not maybe rooted in reality. But can you envision a time when the use of indigenous imagery, names, likenesses as logos, mascots, team names ends? I would hope to see it end. I mean, I think of like the Golden State Warriors, and they use no kind of imagery, even only the Golden State Warriors. And... Even if Kansas City could do that, you know, just go away from all that, you know, fake headdresses and, and the drum and, and the chant. I mean, it would be possible. Um, I think it would take somebody to up, up on a higher level to say something and, and get the movement going. But unless they see this as, you know, racism and that it is racist against the people of color um, that they don't want to pay attention to that they don't care about how we feel about it then it's not going to happen yeah i did want to ask you and you kind of touched on it there but i did want to ask you know what is it going to take to get there and i guess as you said maybe it's you know sort of higher ups and or the powers that be finally having an about face about this which looks like at this point is fairly unlikely yeah no they're hanging on to it Yeah, we're speaking with Rhonda Lavaldo, a professor at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, Rhonda, I'm going to let you go soon here, but I also just kind of wanted to maybe ask that for someone who is maybe hanging out this Sunday with a bunch of friends, you know, watching the big game, but has concerns about some of this imagery and chanting and things like that, how would you sort of recommend they sort of approach that conversation with people who, you know, might not maybe see things their way? I mean... You know, I don't want people to get get upset with each other or get in fights. I mean, it would be just nice to say, hey, I'd appreciate it if you don't participate in doing this because it's just, you know, racist. <laughs> um, but I know people are still going to do it. And, I mean, I'll be watching the game. Um, I want to document, you know, what I see um, during the game. And it's just... You know, I I hope I hope it's not as bad as I think it's going to be. I like having a little bit of hope there. I do actually want to just quickly ask you one more thing in terms of, you know, are there appropriate ways to actually honor and celebrate indigenous culture through sports? One example that, you know, I have sort of noticed is that the Green Bay Packers have for a few years now had a partnership with the Oneida Nation where for you know at least a couple of home games per season, they actually have actual members of the Oneida Nation come in and do round dancing and drumming and things like that, which to me seems like a more respectful and tactful approach to this. Do you think that is possible to kind of have the combination of indigenous culture and sport and do it right? Yeah, definitely. I've seen a lot of a lot of um, teams work with tribes to do that, to, to show their support for Native American Heritage Month. 
in November. And actually, Kansas City has done that. Um, but again, it's it's just very weird to me. And I know there are Native Americans that don't care and are willing to go and do those things for Kansas City. Um, the odd thing about it is, is we have to get people from different states that are like states away. These people are not from here. And what I always tell people is that, yeah, you guys get to go back home. You get to go back home to Oklahoma or South Dakota or wherever you came from. But I have to live here and deal with it. You know, you get to leave and I have to deal with all this. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, the, again, the example I cited with, or, uh, cited with Green Bay is that it is actually members of a nearby nation that are actually in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and, and kind of being yeah. celebrated there. So, Yeah, I, and I think that's great. All right, Rhonda, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And certainly we will be, as you mentioned, still watching the game and still observing on things, but also, you know, having this in the backs of our mind and still, you know, thinking critically about this types of issue, even when such a big event is going on on a weekend like this. Yeah, and and if anything, uh, the one positive thing to come out of this whole situation is that this issue is finally being talked about with Kansas City because they've flown under the radar about this situation. You know, most of the attacks have been on uh, the Washington football team, um, but now it's, you know, being talked about with, with Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, perhaps through discussions in time, we might see actually some progress on this particular issue. We'll wait and see. Uh, Ronald Lavaldo, professor at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, thanks again for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you. And uh, we thank you for listening. Until next time, I say onigiha. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.